It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rulebook, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Brian Raleigh, and this is The Big Rethink. In today's episode, we're talking to Tanya Clement, president of Cardinal Peak Technologies and Beyond Everest, and actually the ninth U.S. woman to climb Mount Everest from the North Ridge. She'll share with us sort of how she reached the summit by overcoming challenges with her team of fellow climbers, including her future husband. And she'll explain how technology came to her aid in combating many of those challenges, something that has led her to inspire others to follow their passion and reach their peak performance. Tanya, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to have you. Brian, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to talking to you. So let's jump in a little bit and start with sort of the, how did this come about? So so can you tell us a little bit of how you sort of discovered this passion for mountain climbing? Sure. It um, It's something that came to be later in life. I was... Um, a runner. And my goal was to run all of the highest peaks in Colorado. We have over 54 peaks, 14,000 feet and above. And the desire was to do safe passage through them. So I took a basic mountaineering skills course through the Colorado Mountain Club. And there was a day of rock climbing. And it stole my heart. I, I put my hands and my feet on the rock and I said, I think I was born to do this. And that was much later in life. I was in my mid thirties and I joke and say, it's been uphill ever since. So that's how I found the passion for getting into the mountains. So, so I'm curious. So when you, you know, you did that, you know, put your hands uh, out and said, this is where it's at. At that point was was Everest, like, was that always the ultimate goal? Or like, how, how did Everest come into the, I mean, obviously, it's an incredible accomplishment, but, but was out of the gate, was that where it started? No, it wasn't there initially. But I, I tend to liken it to all sports. If you're a football player, you ultimately want to go to the Super Bowl. If you're a tennis player, Wimbledon's you know, the high, the high goal, the high achievement. So I think as I started doing mountains, uh, the, the little peak, you know, you want a bigger peak. You always want to push yourself a little further. It wasn't too long after discovering climbing that I set my sights on Everest. I just started reading books about it. And then you just get drawn into the stories. And next sure. thing you know, it's something you want to do. So, 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 I mean, obviously you don't just wake up one morning and decide Everest is, is, is where I want, want to be, right? <laughs> right. Um, uh, so, so, so talk to us and, and our listeners a little bit about what is the journey, like when you're planning to climb Everest, what is the journey like to get ready for that climb? And, 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 and then obviously, you know, I'm going to follow up with what, what is that climb like? But, but let's start with what, what is the journey? Like, how do you prepare for that? Great question. I I think the first step to doing big mountains is to step on your first mountain of high altitude. And, and for me, that was Mount Kenya in Africa, which is just over 17,000 feet. The highest you can get in Colorado is 14,000. In North America, it's just over 20,000, and that's Denali. But for me, my first big mountain was going to Africa. 
And you kind of see how your body does at the altitude. And I think what happens, you go on an expedition and you either love it or you hate it. It's Mm. a lot of sitting around and waiting and very little climbing because you have to let your body adjust. The, you know, the conditions are extreme. You have very high um, volatility and weather. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's either something that you enjoy and you push through it or you it drives you nuts and you want to go home. That first mountain left me wanting more. And so you, the path to Everest is doing as many mountains as you can do and slowly increasing your elevation each time you go. So when you say your body getting adjusted, like talk to us a little bit, like what 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 ends up happening? Like is it is it uh, from a overall your your overall feeling? Is it fatigue? Is it like what are what are some of the things that you're trying to adjust to? Well, there's the emotional side of it, which is just mm-hmm. adjusting to those extremes that I mentioned. But there's also the physical side of things. There are people that just cannot, their bodies will not allow them to go to certain elevations. Mm. In Colorado, we have the ski resorts. <laughs> and mm. um, it goes unreported just how many people really get altitude sickness when they come to the mountains. So it it, it is a personal thing. Everybody's a little different. And that's why it's important to figure out what your body can and cannot handle. The the side effects are everything from cerebral edema to um, just general nausea, you know, and you're either cut out for it or you're not. You can train yourself. And the way people climb Everest is you go slow. You go to big mountains, you spend many days letting your body adjust. You develop more red blood cells in your system the longer you stay. The game is climb high, sleep low, go a little higher the next time, sleep low, just inch your way up it. If a person were to just go to the top of one of our 14,000 foot mountains and spend the night, they'd be very sick the next day. So, so when you, so, so from when you started this to actually the amount of time from, all right, I'm going to climb Everest to when you actually did it, help us understand what was that span of time? How, how much time and how many climbs were there between, you know, that initial time to getting yourself prepped and ready to, to, to actually do the Everest climb? That's one of my uh, favorite questions to answer because it was a little shocking. My path was very short. When I discovered mountaineering, I started doing a few peaks, and the highest I had been was Amadablam in Nepal in 2004, and that was 22,494 feet. Mount Everest is more than a mile higher than that, at just over 29,000 feet, but it was on that trip that I saw Mount Everest, and in 2004, I see the mountain, and it's just lures you to it. It's like, oh, I want to do that. And I started telling everybody that I wanted to do it. I bought books. I reached out to people. It was no secret that that was a a dream of mine. And then I was invited to go on this climb. And therein lies the story of how that came to be. And I had... only two months to prepare for the climb by the time I was invited. It was not me planning to go. The invite came out of nowhere. 
there was a gentleman named Lance Trumbull who had a vision to put an Israeli and a Palestinian on top of Mount Everest. And he had assembled a team a year prior and they had been training together and, and getting ready for this big event. And it was a diverse team. And the goal was to prove that people could come together, a very diverse group of climbers with very different backgrounds and achieve a common goal. And there was a female on this trip representing the United States. And at the last minute, she had to withdraw her spot because she had become pregnant and her doctors would not allow her to go. So Lance was looking for a woman. I was working in the outdoor industry and we would host this huge trade show every year. And so that was the logical place for him to come find a climber because this expedition was leaving in two months. And he was a little desperate. He, the, the climb was sponsored by Panasonic. And at the time, in 2006, Panasonic said, we do not want to sponsor this climb if there's not a woman on the team. Because it's truly not a diverse team without a female. And this woman was the only woman. And she was representing the United States. So he came to the show and other people in the industry when he was looking, said, go talk to Tanya. I know she's interested, and I'm sure she will say yes. And so he came up, and he invited me, and it was quite a shock because I was used to people coming up and asking for sponsorship for my climbing company, company to sponsor them to do the climb, but he was asking me to climb. And my coworkers said I turned white. They thought I was going to pass out. <laughs> but, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the invite came. And there was a little um, sidebar to the invite. He said, oh, by the way, you only have two days to decide. So if I, if I understand the timing correctly, 2004 was your very first time. 2006 is when this happened. And so you'd been climbing for two years. And then you had two-month window before the actual climb took place. And you had two days to decide. Do I have that timeline correct? <laughs> you're, you're, you're close. You're close. Not okay. quite. I, I actually found climbing in roughly 1997 when I took that course in the CMC. And then I did each year because I was a working person. I was not a full-time athlete. I, would, I was what you call a weekend warrior. So over the years, I went to Africa. I went to Peru. Each time I climbed a little higher. But it was 2004 that I went to Nepal and really saw Everest up close and personal for the first time. And at that point, that was the highest I had been, which was a mile lower in altitude than Everest. But I saw the mountain and I said, that's what I want to do. At that moment, it was my Wimbledon. It was my Super Bowl. It was my, my dream climb. But I'm sure you expected to have more than two days to be able to decide that this is the time that I'm going <laughs> to actually do it. <laughs> right, Brian, you can only imagine the things that go through your mind. Uh, sure. Whoa, whoa, am I ready? Am I too old? Am I prepared? Am I, do I have the right skills? Can I get the time off? Who will water my plants? Who will take care of my pet pets? What, you know, your, your mind just spins. So, so what was what was the climb like? Wow, what was the climb like? It, it was, uh, it, it, to me, to this day, it still seems surreal. But sure. it, um, I guess I would sum it up and say it was everything I imagined and more. You, you really 
can't predict what's going to happen in a mountain environment. But um, it was it was a beautiful experience, and it changed my life forever in so many ways. But the climb itself, I would say the biggest surprise was while you have those extremes, you have a lot of nice days and you have a lot of rough days. And it's just pushing through the tough days that make you really feel like you've had a sense of accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, I'm so curious. So, I mean, I can only imagine the ups and downs that, you know, sort of come along with that type of an endeavor. Walk us through, if you would, you know, some of the challenges that you and sort of the your fellow climbers face during the climb. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, there's things there that probably are impactful and have sort of shaped who you are today as a result of it. But talk to us a little bit about some of those those challenges. I, I, I mean, that that it's just fast. I mean, this topic is so fascinating. I mean, you know, there's obviously, I, I think, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the desire to have a female climber um, and the emphasis that was placed on that. But female climber, male climber, I mean, Everest is just a huge accomplishment and such an, a, a huge undertaking. I, I just, I, I, I want to hear more. I, you know, I'm so fascinated by this. So talk to us a little bit about those challenges. What, what were some of those? I, I think the the biggest challenge for me was the worry, the concern, and the fear to be the only girl. Let's face it, I was the only girl, but I'm going to say it like this. I didn't want to be, in quotes, the girl, right? So I wanted to pull my own weight. I wanted to be a team player. And when I before I went, I, I asked everybody in the industry, I asked other people who had been there, who had attempted the mountain or succeeded and climbed the mountain, I said, what, what do I need to worry about? And they said, you really need to look out for yourself, care for yourself. Even though you're a team, it's really each person for their own once you step on that mountain. You operate as a team, you're there together, but you really got to take care of yourself. So, you know, I'm like, well, okay. So I, I put my big girl pants on. <laughs> and, and that was more of a mental thing because when I arrived to the base camp, there were other teams there, clearly. It's a village, a small village of people all attempting the same goal. And I, I had to contend with other climbers approaching me and saying, are you the base camp cook? Oh, are you here supporting your husband while he climbs the mountain? And that weighs on you. It's like, no, no, I'm here to climb it myself. And, and so it triggers that little voice once again, am I good enough? Should I be here? Do I belong? So it was a lot of self, self-talk that I really had to reach deep and make sure I didn't lose my confidence. Well, interestingly enough, though, uh, you were supporting your husband because you were actually climbing alongside of him. You didn't know that at the time, right? But <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, but talk to our listeners about that. So you ended up meeting your husband. He was also climbing the mountain at the same time, correct? That is correct. He So he was hired to create the film. So the the further the bigger vision that Lance had for this climb, not only to put the Israeli and the Palestinian on top, but he wanted to make a movie about it, a documentary for the world to see. And he succeeded in getting the Dalai Lama to bless that. 
as as well as to get Orlando Bloom to MC it. So uh, kudos to him for having the vision, but he needed to hire a professional filmmaker. So there was, this team was, like I mentioned, it was very diverse. We had a climber from India. We had a climber from South Africa. Then we had two Israelis and the one Palestinian. And then I was the one representing the United States. But the filmmaker was also from the United States. And um, he had been on Everest before. He had uh, guided many many climbers up Everest, as well as done many productions on it, carrying the camera. So he was the logical choice to hire to film this. And I wasn't there looking to meet anybody. That's the furthest thing from my mind, uh, the last thing on my mind. But um, he's there. He's been there. So I had a level of respect for him. And I really kind of paid attention to him just from his experience level. But he also spoke English <laughs> and he was someone that I could relate to. And, you know, we got to know each other along the climb. And then it turned out our first date photo was on the summit of the mountain because we actually were on top at the same time. That was an accident, but it happened. So our first date photo is our summit photo together. That's that's an amazing, amazing story. I, I know when we were prepping and having some conversations prior to, to this actual discussion, um, you mentioned that technology really helped you um, in overcoming some of the challenges that you faced on the mountain. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could share with us um, sort of how did that take place? How, how, did, how did technology and, and what introduction of, of technology sort of helped you in some of those critical moments? Technology back then was not as far as advanced, advanced as it is today, right? So our connection to the world was we had a Panasonic Toughbook that we, you know, took to base camp with us. We took it to the advanced base camp, which sits just above 21,000 feet at approximately 21,500 feet. And back then, there weren't very many options of a laptop that you could take to those extreme elevations. Like I said, that's higher than the highest mountain in, in North America, our base camp, because of the pressure changes. So very few um, computers in that time could operate up there. And then you've got the transport to get it there. So we had a laptop, we had a satellite connection, and it was that was our connection to the rest of the world. Today, if you go climb Everest, people are on phones, they're, they're communicating. Uh, satellite phones are inexpensive now. You're connected every day. People know where you are every step of the way. But back then, that was it. And we lived for each day that we would fire up that laptop and see who had written us an email. <laughs> Lance was posting, he, he was posting updates for the world to see. And again, we had friends all over the place. We would be their morning coffee. You know, they'd get up and look for that post. And on our side, we just couldn't wait to see if anyone had responded. So it was the highlight of every day. And that was it. That's all we had. I don't even think I had a Facebook account in 2006. In fact, I know I didn't. 
Yeah, it's it's that that contact and and that that remote sort of attachment to, to sort of keep you going. You know, we know you met your husband during the climb, but um, it, you know, there's also the climb also inspired you um, to launch an organization known as Beyond Everest. Can you can you tell us a little bit about the organization? Absolutely, but Beyond Everest really just was um, a product of. Upon our return, so many people, nonprofits, uh, schools, you name it, wanted us to come and speak and share our story. And we just need, we really needed a website that was a platform that had our bios on it, that just kind of told our story and gave a little background. You know, we wish we'd written a book. We always wanted to write a book, and I had the title. The title was going to be Everest Lasting Love Story. Because if you speak, (laughs) people want something tangible. They want to see something about you before the speech, after the speech. So the website was really just that. It's it's not nothing more. It, It was a platform for us to, you know, tell our story and have some photographs up there and just a place for people to 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 learn a little bit more about us. Well, you know, I know that um, obviously there's there's huge accomplishment here, and and you know one of the things that you know whether it's Everest or anything else, um, what advice would you give others who sort of have that same desire and passion uh, to do something? Whether it's like I said, climbing mountains or something else, what what advice would you give to others, knowing what you know now, being in the in, in the situation that you were, and again being sort of that ninth, you know, woman in the U.S. to be able to climb that. I mean, it's an incredible accomplishment. What would you tell others? Hmm, I think think the biggest lesson that I learned that is worthy of sharing is so much reward and satisfaction comes from stepping out of your comfort zone and doing something more difficult and harder than you ever thought possible. Because once you break through that, that's where you get your gratification, your self-esteem, just your overall sense of accomplishment. But I think it's hard to do. And and it was one person's, a, a fellow climber, it was his advice that really made me accept the offer and decide to go. And I I remember it like yesterday. He said, Tanya, you will never have enough time or money to climb Mount Everest. And I think you can substitute anything in to that statement. You'll never have enough time or money to build your dream home, take your dream trip, switch your career. Uh, It just always seems so daunting. But it's just taking that first step and doing it. And then once you're on your way, it, it feels great when you start making progress. Well, I mean, it's all about living in the present, right? I mean, having the abilities and knowing um, that, you know, what we have, you know, sometimes we take for granted. And if we always wait for that perfect moment for something to happen, that perfect moment might not exist. So uh, living in the present, I think, is a great, great way uh, to sort of round out our conversation here. Tanya, again, 
I, you know, I know it was a while back. I, I'm so thrilled that we actually had the opportunity to, to find one another, uh, to be able to have this conversation and to officially congratulate you on what was an incredible accomplishment. Um, thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So before we sign off, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us grow by visiting our feed on iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe. Or if you're listening to Spotify, be sure and hit follow. That's it for us. I'm Brian Raleigh. That was another episode of The Big Rethink. 